Hello, friend. I'm glad to see you weren't too spooked last time, and you've returned to the woods. Here, take your place next to the campfire. It's all ready for you. If you haven't listened to part one of this Halloween episode, I highly recommend that you do. We have 31 stories from 31 different crime podcasts. All the podcasts are listed in order of appearance, along with a link on where you can find them. I am your friend to guide you through the darkness, Shane Waters, from Foul Play Crime Series. Oh, my friend finally just showed up, by the way. Maybe now is a good time to introduce you to my friend Cambo. His accent alone might help ease your fear. Cambo is the host of True Crime Island, and this is the tale of who killed little Nima Louise Carter. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. It's Halloween. And it was Halloween night in 1977, Lawton, Oklahoma. At 606 Southwest 23rd Place, George and Rose Carter have put their daughter, 19-month-old Nima Louise, to bed. George and Rose then retired to their own bedroom to sleep. The quiet of the night was broken by little Nima crying in the other room. George and Rose would let Nima cry it out rather than go in to see her. They didn't want to spoil her, a decision they would regret for the rest of their lives. You see, on this Halloween night, there was evil lurking at 606 23rd place. In the morning, Rose was alarmed as she went to get Nima out of a cot. Nima wasn't there and a search of the house failed to find her. The Carters didn't lock their back door, a thing a lot of people back in the day didn't do. George and Rose called police but a search of the area failed to find their daughter. Now there'd been some strange goings on before that Halloween night. The Carter's home had been broken into and photos of Nima had been scattered behind a shed in the backyard. Now this happened just days after their dog had been poisoned. On Wednesday the 23rd of November, Nima's body would be found on the floor of an abandoned house at 1916 D Avenue, just minutes from the Carter's home. Although she'd been found on the floor of the kitchen, she had been in an old refrigerator suffocated and it looked like someone had entered the house, opened the fridge and her body had fallen out. Now police on the scene were shocked at the similarity of an unsolved case from the year before where three and a half year old twin sisters Tina and Mary Carpitcher were found locked in an old fridge in an abandoned house less than a mile from where Nima was found and it was near train tracks. Now, Mary suffocated, but Tina survived by being able to breathe some air from a worn seal on the door. Now, the twins had disappeared from their grandma's house on the 8th of April 1976 and found on the 10th. They'd both been beaten, bitten and put in the fridge and left to die. Now, these old fridges were before they had magnetic locks and they were able to be locked by the handle at the front and this prevented the girls from escaping. But Tina was able to identify her abductor. It was her babysitter, 16-year-old Jacqueline Robito. 
Now, this was backed up by a girl who heard her screams from the fridge that day and opened the door. It was 11-year-old Kathy Ford who asked Tina who did this to her, and Tina replies, Jackie Boo. Not only were the two cases similar in that the kids had been left in fridges to die, but Jacqueline Robido had previously babysat for the Carters as well. But police in 1976 didn't have any real leads to follow until that Halloween murder of Nima. Now, they then interviewed the now 18-year-old Robido, and she, of course, denied any involvement in either of the crimes, and police couldn't get a confession from her. Anyway, Jacqueline Robido would eventually be charged in the death of Mary Carpitcher, and after a mistrial, she would eventually be convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, Tina had testified that Jackie had entered their grandma's living room at 3 Northwest 28th Street, where they were watching the telly on the afternoon of April the 8th, 1976, and told them to come with her. They walked several blocks to the house where they were told to get into the refrigerator and their aunt Thomasina would come get them later and take them for ice cream. Now, what's also disturbing about this case was that a Mr. and Mrs. Craig that lived nearby saw Robido walking near the house and she had hold of the two little girls' arms by the wrists and they were trying to pull loose. Now, Miss Craig said that afterwards they saw Robido walking alone. Now, they also said she didn't report this to the police at the time because, I guess like other people, I didn't want to get involved. Jeez. Jacqueline Robido would never be brought to justice for the Halloween murder of Nima Carter. Robido would die in prison on the 26th of August 2005, age 46. So, to my question at the start, who killed Nima Carter? Well, I think we can safely say Jacqueline Robido did it. And she probably broke into the house and threw Nima's photos behind the shed. And I reckon she poisoned the dog as well. Why? Well, it looks like the Carters got a new babysitter and Robido was pissed off. Robido had spoken to a friend at the local Quickie Mart after George Carter had told her that they had another babysitter. Now, she said, They told me that was my job. Well, if that's the way he wants it, so be it. A jealous rage or a psycho killer. Lucky they finally locked her up so she couldn't kill again. So I've been Cambo Ford from True Crime Island. Have a happy Halloween. Don't forget to lock your doors and make sure you delete your browser history. Good night. The accent helped, right? Based on a True Story is hosted by Dan. It's the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. You can take it from here, Dan. One of my favorite movies to watch around Halloween is 1992's The Crucible. That movie is actually based on a play by Arthur Miller, so it's not necessarily trying to tell something directly from history, but nevertheless, it tells the story of the Salem witch trials. So let's take a few minutes to learn more about the true story as we dig into the history behind The Crucible. It's dark. Winona Ryder's character, a girl named Abigail Williams, wakes with a start. There's a girl in the bed with her, and with a little shake, Abigail wakes her up. Quietly, the two girls get out of bed and put pillows in their place. 
they carefully cover the pillows with blankets. So if anyone were to peek in at them, they would think that the two girls were still in bed. Then they sneak downstairs and out the side door. The camera cuts to another house and we see more girls sneaking out of their homes as well. Then an overhead shot shows even more girls as they quietly make their way down the empty dirt streets of the town. If you pause the movie, you can see 12 girls at any one time on the screen. And speaking of pausing, let's pause the movie ourselves for a moment here because it doesn't give any sort of indication of time, date, or location. So before we continue further, let's turn to history to date what we're seeing here and give ourselves a geographical setting. All of this is happening in Salem, Massachusetts, on the east coast of the United States. That's about 15 miles or 24 kilometers to the north of Boston. The year is 1692. Salem has been in existence for 66 years and has quickly grown to being one of the most important seaports on the new continent. In 1692, of course, the United States wasn't really a thing yet, so Salem was an English colony. More specifically, it was one of the settlements in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Boston was considered another settlement in that same colony. If we go back to the movie, Abigail and the other girls were on their way into the forest. Once there, a slave named Tichuba leads them in some sort of ritual. The girls start swaying back and forth as Tichuba chants. One of the girls says, make a spell on Joseph Baker, Tichuba. Make him love me. Another one calls out, make Daniel Poole my husband. This whole opening sequence of the love spell ritual in the forest outside of Salem is, well, to be honest, we don't really know if it's true or not, but it's probably not. You see, there's so much about the events surrounding the story that we just don't know. It was 1692, after all, and not everything was documented. With that said, what we do know of the events leading up to the Salem witch trials The evidence suggests that it was not because of a love spell ritual being conducted in secret in the forest like we see in the opening scenes of the movie. One of the sources of documentation that we do know about comes from a man named Reverend John Hale. He wrote a book in 1697. You can find the full text of the book linked over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash 143. But here is a quote from his book that gives us an idea for What might have started the whole thing? I fear some young persons, through a vain curiosity to know their future condition, have tampered with the devil's tools. So far, that hereby one door was opened to Satan to play those pranks. I knew one of the afflicted persons who, as I was credibly informed, did try with an egg and a glass to find her future husband's calling, till there came up a coffin that is, a specter in likeness of a coffin. And she was afterward followed with diabolical molestation to her death, and so died a single person, a just warning to others to take heed of handling the devil's weapons, lest they get a wound thereby. Another I was called to pray with, being under sore fits and vexations of Satan, and upon examination I found she had tried the same charm, And after her confession of it and manifestation of repentance for it and our prayers to God for her, she was speedily released from those bonds of Satan. This iniquity, though I take it not to be the capital crime condemned, Exodus 22, because such persons act ignorantly, not considering they hereby go to the devil, yet borders very much upon it. 
and is too like Saul's going to the witch at Endor and Ahaziah sending to the god of Ekron to inquire. What Reverend Hale is referring to is something known as umancy, or sometimes referred to as a Venus glass. It was thought to have been something like a crystal ball, something used to tell one's future. Remember that scene in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban where Harry is in Professor Trelawney's divination class and he sees the tea leaves at the bottom of the cup to reveal the grim? Well, that's basically what this charm was, except instead of tea leaves, they used an egg. The basic concept of this method of divination is to provide some sort of heat and drop an egg onto it. Then you read the shape that the egg white takes when it starts to solidify. As Hale mentioned, the girls seem to have been using this as a way of telling who their future husbands might be. So you can see how this, the idea of the rituals that we're seeing in the forest in the movie, looking, trying to cast love spells and things like that could be turned into what we see. As the story goes, the two girls who started playing with this form of divination might have been Abigail Williams and Betty Paris. They got scared when the egg white revealed the shape of a coffin, presumably predicting some horrible fate, kind of like what we saw with Harry Potter. So it's not likely that they were performing the love spell rituals that we see in the movie. Instead, they were using eggs as a form of divination or umancy. Think about that the next time you crack an egg over your pan. The shape you see when the egg white hits the heated pan was one of the ingredients that went into the Salem witch trials hysteria. On the other side of that, Reverend Hale's words also give us a peek into the mindset of Christianity of the day, as he mentions the charm being the bonds of Satan. In fact, Reverend Hale's book opens with a scripture verse from Isaiah 8. Verses 19 and 20. When they say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The witch that Reverend Hale mentions is also from the Bible, the witch of Endor. That comes from 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 6 through 8. When the first king of Israel, Saul, sought out the counsel of a witch in the city of Endor, he asked the witch to, quote, Divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee, end quote. As that story goes, King Saul asked for the spirit of his old mentor and prophet of God, Samuel. But things didn't turn out so well when the spirit of Samuel prophesied the Israelites would be defeated by the Philistines the next day in battle. And so you start to get an idea for why the Christians in Salem could see this as an example of cause and effect. Essentially, there are dire consequences for getting help from a witch. Between February of 1692 and May of 1693, more than 200 people were accused of what we now know as the Salem Witch Trials. 30 of those were found guilty by the court, and 20 of those 30 were killed, 19 by hanging, and one by being pressed to death when he refused to go to trial. Looking back on it, many historians have suggested the Salem Witch Trials became an excuse for people to steal land and possessions. After all, when someone was accused, all their assets would be forfeited to the crown. Remember, it was an English settlement and not the United States. The United States was not a country yet. But it's not like the king personally took the assets of those accused. That's just how the law worked. And then those assets would usually come up for auction. And often the accuser would coincidentally be the one purchasing or simply taking ownership. That's how the assets would change hands legally. 
So those accused would lose their possessions and someone else would swoop in to take them over. It was all legal. Meanwhile, lives were ruined and even lost in the process. It wasn't until 18 years later in 1711 that a bill was passed to officially restore the good names and rights. 578 pounds was split amongst the survivors and relatives of the accused. It's tough to calculate the exact amount from that time, but as close as I can figure, that's probably about $42,000 in today's U.S. dollars. So far, there has been a lot of tales from the U.S., but the world is a really big place. Jessica is the host of the Asian Madness podcast. She specifically covers crime on the Asian continent. Who better to bring us a tale from her home country of Taiwan? Many of you may not be familiar with Taiwan and what it's like, but just like any other place around the world, we have some specific spots that are said to be extra haunted. One of these places is a tunnel in Taipei City called Xinhai Tunnel. What's so special about this place? Well, for one thing, this tunnel is notorious for all the accidents that have taken place in and around it. Another reason is because the western entrance of the tunnel leads directly to the second municipal funeral parlor in Taipei City. Not only that, the mountain in which the tunnel is carved from is home to many old graves, so if you drive during the day and you look up, it might just seem like any old regular mountain. But if you look closely, you can see there are many traditional gravestones lined up all around it. Almost everyone is aware that this tunnel is known to be haunted. Many people who drive through this tunnel are wary and extra careful. It might be a bit superstitious, but it doesn't hurt to be alert while driving through tunnels. Many people have reportedly seen a womanly figure walking in the tunnel, and some have even heard a woman's voice near them when driving. It should be impossible to hear something like that so clearly when you're driving through a tunnel. Which leads us to today's tale. A taxi driver experienced something quite extreme, and this is his story. One night, he was making his usual rounds around the city, and that's when he drove through the tunnel. At the entrance, he found an expressionless young woman waving at him, so of course, he stopped and let her get in. He didn't think much of it. The area was close to the city, so not exactly in the middle of nowhere. The woman was very pale, almost sickly. The driver didn't pry, just simply asked her for her destination. She gave him an address, and off he went. They drove around and the driver was feeling somewhat uncomfortable, like something in the air didn't feel right, but he chalked it up to him being superstitious and tired. Eventually, the taxi driver arrived at their destination, and as the woman was about to get off, she calmly told the driver that she didn't have money on her, and asked if he would please wait outside while she went in and got her purse. Well, it's not like the driver had much of a choice, so he agreed to this. The woman got out, entered the residence, and thus began the waiting game. The driver waited and waited, and time seemed to go by even more slowly in the middle of the night. Finally, 20 minutes went by and he was a little frustrated. 
He wanted to continue on his taxi route, or maybe even go home. So he got out of his taxi, went out to the residence, and pressed on the doorbell. It was late, so it took a few tries, but eventually a man answered. The taxi driver explained that he dropped off a young woman about 20 minutes ago, and she said she needed to get her purse, and that he was still waiting. The man on the other end of the call box eventually walked out, and it was an older man. He handed the money over to the taxi driver and apologized. The driver was a bit confused, but before he could ask or say anything, the older man opened his mouth once again. According to him, his daughter had passed away in a car accident a while ago in Xinghai Tunnel, where she was picked up that night. Ever since then, she would appear sporadically, hail taxis, and ask them to drop her off at her home. The driver had no words for this older man. He simply thanked him, gave him his condolences, and got back in his taxi. Understandably, he decided to call it a night and headed straight home afterwards. So that's one of the many, many tales involving this Xinhai Tunnel, probably the most haunted tunnel in Taiwan. I know that this tale is probably more on the sad and depressing end rather than the spooky side, but can you really not get spooked out as well knowing you gave a lift to a ghost? It's perfectly normal to feel a mix of emotions, and this is one of those cases. I don't give lifts to anyone, and that was a good example as to why. May I ask, have you ever heard of summoning the Candyman? Mara and Taz from Sisters Who Kill are here to share the tale. Our players this week are the plantation owner, the murderer, and Daniel Ravitel, the Candyman. There once lived a man named Daniel Ravitel. Daniel was a slave who worked on a plantation in New Orleans, Nolens, as they like to call it. But he wasn't just any old slave. This man was also a talented painter. I mean, hands down, everybody loved to see his paintings. So his owner, the plantation owner, decides that he wants Daniel to paint a portrait of his daughter, his beautiful, loving, snow-white flake-skinned daughter. Now, paintings, of course, as most of you know, they take time, especially really good ones. So that meant that Daniel had to spend a lot of time with his owner's daughter, and he ended up falling in love with her, which is one big mistake. The plantation owner, of course, found out about this, and he was pissed. I mean, he was livid to the point that he grabbed a mob of people, a mob of angry white men to go get Daniel. The mob came and they were armed with pitchforks and they were ready to catch Daniel. They chased him through the fields and they finally caught him. And when they caught him, they were near an old barn. Daniel, he had been running and hiding and he was exhausted and he literally could not run anymore. The mob came up, they grabbed Daniel and they were all snarling at him with a snaggletooth self and they took a rusty saw and they cut off 
Daniel's right hand, the hand that he was so famously known for painting these beautiful portraits, the hand of a slave that fell in love with his master's daughter. The next thing the mob did was go and find a whole bunch of honey. Don't ask me why these white folks had all this honey, but they did. And they doused Daniel's body in this honey and threw him in a beehive. They watched and they laughed and they snickered and they kept making Daniel stay in this beehive until the bees stung him to death. Now listen, the average person can safely tolerate 10 stings per pound of your body weight. This means that although 500 stings could kill a child, the average adult can withstand over 11,000 bee stings before dying. So. Needless to say, Daniel suffered a painful, painful death. And it wasn't fast either. His arm is throbbing from his hand being cut off. And on top of that, his body is swelling due to all the bee stings. And as if this is not enough, the plantation owner comes over and holds a mirror to Daniel's face so that he could look at himself. He mocks Daniel and says, bet my daughter won't like you no more. (laughs) But that's the end of that. So Daniel was like, man, this is really messed up. They could have just killed me, but you going to torture me to death? I bet. So before Daniel dies, he looks into the mirror and he whispers, Candyman. Now this puts a curse on the plantation owner, the mob, and anybody else who dares speak his name. The plantation owner and the mob, they all end up dying in mysterious ways. Nobody was ever able to explain it. Due to the excruciatingly painful way that Daniel died, his spirit was never able to rest. Years after passing, his ghost rose from its grave. Daniel's ghost appears with a hook for a hand, dressed in a black trench coat with fur on the collar. Under his black trench coat is a hollowed-out chest cavity covered in honey and bees. Legend has it that those who have summoned the Candyman were killed with his hook, and if that didn't work, the swarm of bees will finish them off. If you decide that you want to talk to the Candyman, all you got to do is say Candyman five times while looking into a mirror, and he will appear. Candyman. 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 Nah, y'all got it. All right, y'all, we have a part of our show called... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I ain't do it, but if I did... This is how I would have got away with it. I ain't do Halloween last year. But if I did, I would have been Reggie from Rocket Power. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would have dressed up like Josephine Baker. But you know, like a lot of people dress up as Josephine Baker because she is a vaudeville performer that is very famous. But when a lot of people do it, they ended up doing blackface. So we have a couple minutes left and we're going to tell you guys why doing blackface for Halloween is a horrible thing. Blackface is inappropriate anytime, but people like to think that they can get away with it because it's Halloween and you're supposed to dress up as something. But there's like an actual history behind blackface and why it's demeaning. It's not even just blackface. It's cultural appropriation in all types. But like blackface has been frowned on since black minstrel shows of the 18th and 19th century. Like, this is a long history of demeaning behavior 
that you can't just excuse with the date of a holiday. Right. So blackface actually first showed up in American theater. And um, fun fact, it is the only form of theater that is original to America. Everything else was made outside, made or originated outside of this country. And it is made by actors burning cork. And later they use shoe polish to paint their faces black so that they could play these stereotypes of what they thought black people were to pass on the ideas that that black people that were from the south were lazy, ignorant, superstitious, hypersexual, meant to only be mammies or pickaninnies and they did this by also playing music, song and dance. They did this not only by creating stereotypes about Black people, but they also tried to give this illusion because stere- because Blackface, the art of Blackface, started way before the Civil War. But So they were giving this illusion through art and propaganda that slaves on the plantation were happy. They're singing and dancing and shucking and driving and eating watermelons, so they must be having a good time. That's why slavery is a good thing. Blackface was something that started off in vaudeville shows and then made its way to the Great White Way known as Broadway. From there, it was the most popular form of entertainment to the point where Black performers that may have worked the vaudeville circuit they ended up having to cork up. Corking up is basically when you burn the cork and you paint your face black. Famous black performers had to cork up at that time because that was the only way that they would be able to perform because that was the only way that white people would accept entertainment from a black performer. That was the only way that they would accept any type of black media. So when you guys are picking out your Halloween costumes this year, not saying that you can't be somebody outside your race, but you don't have to darken your skin to do it. You can be Wakanda if you want to. Just don't paint your skin black, right? Like I seen some uh, white boys dress up as the Migos, and it was one of the best costumes. And they I think were I did still white boys. And, and still white boys. I know exactly who they were. There's a way to do it. Also, do not dress up as people's culture. People's culture are not a costume. Do not put on headdresses and all that stuff. They have a meaning. They have a purpose. And it's not for you to get voted best dressed at a party. All right? Thanks. So until next time, happy Happy Halloween. Halloween. Candyman. Well... I didn't call this the nightmare before Halloween for nothing, I guess. Good luck to both of us. A lot of my friends here tonight have two podcasts, as do I. I'd like to share a little history with you from my podcast, Hometown History. Did you know there is a different Candyman, too? Halloween is really a special time, isn't it? Especially for me. You can see why if you know who I am. Look up a little. (laughs) That's me, a jack-o'-lantern. At Halloween time every year, I sit up here and watch everybody go by. It's a nice and scary time, isn't it? All those wonderful costumes and masks and makeup. I think about how much fun Halloween is. I also worry a little bit about the things that can spoil the fun of Halloween. Those kinds of things scare me too. The best part of old Halloween safety PSAs, like that one, was the long list of well-intentioned but often terrible advice, like, don't wear black. What about this color? A white costume makes an unusual different kind of witch who's more likely to be safe on Halloween night.
Another suggestion was to wear large fluorescent reflective panels all over your body so you're basically glowing in the dark. A good way to make any costume easier to see at night is to decorate it with reflective tape or reflective patches. This one was a little more reasonable. Expand the eye holes in your mask. Now, how about the mask? Any problem with it? Do you remember how hard it was to see out through those little eye holes? To be safe at night, you have to be able to see clearly as well as be seen. We can improve the mask by cutting larger holes to look out of. Or, if you want to have even less fun, there is an even safer way. You can simply not wear a mask. But as every 80s or 90 kid knows, the greatest threat was always the candy. You see some people think it's fun to play tricks with your treats. Watch out for candy wrappers that have been torn or punctured. That might be a sign of tampering. There might be things in the candy. So break open candy bars before you eat them. Cut fruit into pieces before you eat it, just in case something's been stuck in it. Watch out for things that look like candy, but might be medicines or drugs or even poisons. Don't eat anything that doesn't look right. If it looks funny, it might not be so funny if you ate it. Treats are so much fun to collect. It'd be awful to have them spoil your Halloween fun by making you sick. Corey's treats won't make her sick, and I hope yours won't make you sick either. This idea that strangers were trying to poison you was everywhere when we were kids. Every kid in America heard this warning every single Halloween. And if people gave you fruit or cookies or unwrapped candy, your parents probably made you throw it away. The irony of all this hysteria and fear was that it came back to one case in Texas where a man named Ronald Clark O'Brien used a giant pixie stick to poison his own son. O'Brien laced five of these pixie sticks with potassium cyanide and handed them out on Halloween night. He gave two of them to his children, Timothy and Elizabeth, on whom he had recently taken out life insurance policies. In order to disguise the source of the poisoned candy, O'Brien gave two more pixie sticks to his neighbor's kids. He gave the fifth to a 10-year-old from his church. Fortunately, four of the children were not in the mood for pixie sticks. Unfortunately, Timothy O'Brien's 8-year-old son did eat his and died on the way to the hospital later that night. This next clip is from live coverage from the courthouse during O'Brien's murder trial in 1975. Most of today's testimony came from Jimmy Bates, a close friend of the O'Brien family. Bates said that before Halloween, O'Brien asked if he could bring his children over to trick or treat with the Bates children on Halloween night. Both families ate dinner together and then the fathers took the children trick or treating. Bates said O'Brien went to one house where no one appeared to be home and after the children had scampered ahead to the next house, O'Brien came off the front porch carrying the pixie sticks. He gave the pixie sticks to the children and then later took them back and said he wanted to stop at his car for a moment. Bates said when O'Brien came back into the Bates house, he returned the pixie sticks to the children. Later that night, Timothy O'Brien died from eating a poisoned pixie stick. O'Brien was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to death by electrocution. He was executed by lethal injection 9 years later on March 31, 1984, in the middle of the night. In the words of the prison chaplain, the most despised person ever escorted into the death house 
was Ronald Clark O'Brien, a short, puffy man who had been absolutely friendless during the eight and a half years he'd been in prison. In the week before he was scheduled to be executed, in fact, inmates at the walls had even petitioned to be allowed some manner of organized demonstrations to show their disdain for the former optician who had been convicted of murdering his eight-year-old son. Even if you've never heard this story before, you probably know O'Brien's nickname. They called him the Candyman. Obviously, this is an extreme story involving a heinous crime, but there's a lesson in it, even for those of us who are not planning to poison a family member this Halloween. Personal relationships matter. If the people closest to you are not trying to kill you, it is likely no one will. We often have this idea in life that we have to make everyone happy. We have to make everyone like us. In reality, we just have to be kind and faithful to the people in our inner circles and in our neighborhoods. And if we do that, chances are extremely good that no one will die. Over 90% of homicides are committed by people we know, and of all violent crimes, homicide is the least likely to be committed by a stranger. If you lose your job, your money, your status, but all your most important relationships are healthy, you're probably going to be okay. So this Halloween season, I'd encourage you again to invest in the things that matter. I'd also like to encourage you to wear black and a mask if you'd like, and to not ruin your costume with reflective panels or cut your candy bars into little pieces before you eat them. If you can do all that, then you won't have to worry about scary, real things happening on Halloween, right? Right. Have a fun and a safe Halloween. It looks like my next friend is running a little late. They do this sometimes. You have friends like this too, right? While we wait, let's stop here. <laughs>